meeting where actually there's been some real worship and a congregation to look at for over six months. And whilst there's been one or two odd get-togethers, more business style, this is fantastic. And um, the lady who was a little emotional before, I can understand that. It, you begin to realize that which we've taken for granted. Um, you know, we really want to think, realize how much we miss it. Now, when Neil phoned me um, this week, he said that he'd, uh, could I come and at the last minute, he said, and preach? I said, yes. <laughs> and then he told me it's from Romans 9. Over the next three weeks, you're doing Romans 9, 10, 11. Um, these are probably the most challenging three chapters in the New Testament. Uh, still be my witness, I've probably spent at least 10 hours this week reading Romans, Romans 9, 10 and 11. I'm going to be on Romans 9 and I've only got uh, a half an hour or so to, uh, to, to, delve, to delve into it. But it's complex. And the greatest theological minds for centuries have dug into these passages of Scripture and, uh, and, and not found agreement. So we're dealing with something that is, is difficult and yet we need to get to grasp with um, God's Word. So I'm going to read through um, this, this chapter first. Um, I'm going to read it. I, I, I use Tom Wright's translation of the um, New Testament. He's a great scholar, and I like the way he translates. So I don't know whether you've got that on the board, have you? You haven't got it. I didn't think you would have, so you'll just have to listen a little bit more intently. But here we go. I'm speaking the truth in the Messiah. I'm not lying. I call my conscience as witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart. Left to my own self, I am half inclined to pray that I would be accursed, cut off from the Messiah on behalf of my own family, my own flesh and blood relatives. They are Israelites. The sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises all belong to them. The patriarchs are their ancestors and it is from them according to the flesh that the Messiah has come who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it can't be the case that God's word has failed. Not all who are from Israel, you see, are in fact Israel. Nor is it the case that all the children count as seed of Abraham. No, in Isaac shall your seed be named. That means that it isn't the flesh and blood children who are God's children Rather, it is the children of the promise who will be calculated as seed. This was what the promise said, you see. Around this time I shall return and Sarah shall have a son. And that's not all. The same thing happened when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our ancestor Isaac. When they had not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad. So that what God had in mind in making his choice might come to pass, not because of works, but because of the one who calls. It was said of her, the elder shall serve the younger. As the Bible says, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. 
So what are we going to say? Is God unjust or unfair? Certainly not. He says to Moses, you see, I will have mercy on those who, on whom I will have mercy. And I will pity those I will pity. So then it doesn't depend on human willing or on human effort. It depends on God who shows mercy. For the Bible says to Pharaoh, this is why I've raised you up to show my power in you and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on who he wants and he hardens the ones he wants. He will say to me, so why does he still blame people? Who can stand against his purpose? Are you a mere human being going to answer God back? Surely the clay won't say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have authority over the clay so he can make from the same lump one vessel for honour and another for dishonour? Supposing God wanted to demonstrate his anger and make known his power and for that reason put up very patiently with the vessels of anger created for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, the ones he prepared in advance for glory, including us, whom he called not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. This is what he says to Hosea. I will call not my people, my people, and not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, then there they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, even if the number of Israel's sons are like the sand by the sea, only a remnant shall be saved. For the Lord will bring judgment on earth, complete and decisive. As I said in an earlier passage, if the Lord of hosts had not left us seed, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the nations who are not aspiring towards covenant membership have obtained covenant membership? But it is a covenant membership based on faith. Israel, meanwhile, though eager for the law which, which defined the covenant, did not attain to the law. Why not? Because they did not pursue it on the basis of faith, but as though it was on the basis of works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As the Bible says, look, I am placing in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will trip people up, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Lord Jesus, we love your word. We think it's amazing. But we need your Holy Spirit to help us this morning, please. Lord, amen. So you see what I mean, don't you? <laughs> it's a tough passage of scripture. So this is how I want to approach it this morning in the time that I have. First of all, I want, to, I want to put it in its historical context. Context is so important for understanding God's word. So Paul is ready to move on. He feels that his time in Achaia has come to an end. There's nothing more that he can do. 
and he he needs a new base. He wants to go to the to the extremes of the Roman Empire. He wants to go as far as Spain, and so he he pr- prepares himself to go to Rome, and he sends this epistle on ahead of him. He didn't realise that it actually was going to be several years before he actually made it. Um, Antioch was his base. Something went wrong. We don't know what it was. One of the problems, we're looking at stuff 2,000 years later, and what the Bible tells us, we have to try and assume, but we can't, we can't say for definite. But something went wrong in Antioch. Remember, Paul had to confront Peter when Peter withdrew fellowship from the Gentile Christians. You remember? In fact, it was quite a confrontation face-to-face. And, and then... And, 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 and maybe, maybe that, that whole, that law grace thing sort of came up again. So Paul is, Paul is looking for another, another, another base. And, uh, he, so his plan is to go to Rome via Jerusalem to take the offering, um, for the, for the churches. But as you know, as you read through those latter parts of the Acts of the Apostles, it all went pear shaped in Jerusalem and then, he spent a couple of years incarcerated uh, in house arrest. What about the church in Rome? Well, initially the church was predominantly Jewish. The gospel uh, went to those Jewish synagogues and many were converted. And so in Rome we know there were many, many house churches. We're not even sure that they were aware of, of, of one another. Um, but there was an emperor. In fact, there were some, there were some really nasty emperors around this time. There was one called Claudius. Uh, it was a nasty piece of work. And he passed an edict. And it was an edict that expelled all Jews from living in Rome. Now, you're not going to get rid of all the Jews living in Rome because there's goodness knows how many thousands or tens of thousands of them. But, but a lot of Jews had to flee from Rome under this edict. Remember Aquila and Priscilla that Paul works with, their co-workers, he meets them in Ephesus. Well, they fled at this time um, to, to Ephesus and Paul piled up with them. And so his ministry um, was continued very much um, with them. And, and so but what happened during that time and the reason why he expelled um, the Jews was that there was a controversy which caused all sorts of uh, uh, disturbances in Rome over someone that we, we, we recorded as Crestus, C-I-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, Crestus. And again, historians think actually it's just it was the wrong spelling of the name. It should have been Christus. In other words, as the gospel came and was preached, the same things happened in Rome amongst the Jews that happened in other places, that there was a reaction and a rejection of Jesus the Messiah. Some were converted to Christ, many were not, and then perhaps they were riots. We don't, we don't know historically what took place. But it got up the nose of this emperor so much so that he said, I've, I've had it with the Jews. And so he expelled them. And then another nasty character came along called Nero. Okay? And he wasn't very nice at all. By the time I tell you some nasty things about him. But Nero wanted the Jews back. And so the, the, the edict was rescinded and then the Jews all came back. 
But what did they find? Sorry, I'm moving around a bit too much. What did they find? They found, well, basically, during this time of their absence, the, the Gentile churches have flourished, had grown, and goodness knows how many thousands of house churches there were there in Rome. And, and, and basically, there was an arrogance amongst them that went something like this. And, and it's an arrogance that we live with today, and particularly they live with at the Reformation, that God has finished with his ancient people, the Israelites. It's now just the Gentile churches. So the Jews come back, Jewish Christians. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to come back with their traditions, aren't they? They're, they're going to come back with circumcision. They're going to come back with feasting and, and, and festivals and the Sabbath and the law. They can be in Christ and still observe those things. But it caused tension between the Gentile Christian churches and the Jewish Christian churches. And if you read the end of Paul's letter, particularly chapters 14 and 15, what it's all about? It's about unity. It's about tolerance. It's about, it's, it's about, it's about enjoying the differences that we have with one another. Isn't that a message for today, for goodness sake? Because Paul says, no, we're one new man in Christ. Can I just say this? This is by the side. We talk, particularly in regions beyond, a lot about one new man in Christ. But you know, until we have Jew, Jewish people, until we have Israelites, until we have those who were those that God first chose and called, we're not truly one new man in Christ. John, John Cleveland's coming at the end of the month, I think, isn't he? Um, he'll, he'll set me straight, and uh, but I'm sure he'll embrace he'll embrace that. So, so there's there's so much there's so much con, con, context context here. So you've got this tension now that has grown again, and uh, and so that's the historical context, the emotional, the psychological. Hey, we gotta get hold of Paul. We gotta understand this, so who Saul of Tarsus was and still is to an extent. What was the what was the emotional impact when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus? You see, this is what Paul believed prior to his. Encounter. He believed this Jesus, this Jesus sect is a vile and dangerous heresy. He is committed fanatically, he was fanatical, to eradicate it from the face of the earth. And he had backing. We know he had authority to arrest, even to see people put to death. Stephen was, was martyred in front of him and he was giving his authority to that. As far as Paul was concerned, it is impossible that a man hanged and cursed on a cross can possibly be Israel's Messiah. I will stamp out this horrible sect. The shock that hit him on the Damascus Road. We, we, we need to understand, to understand this passage of Scripture. Um, I want to read... Uh, just a quote from uh, Tom Wright, his wonderful book, and I do recommend it, called Paul, 
um, a biography. It's, it's amazing. But he, he says this. He says, to understand the explosion that resulted, we need history. We need theology. We need a strong sense of the inner tensions of the first century Jewish world and the zealous propagators of Jewish culture. This moment shattered Paul's wildest dreams and at the same split second fulfilled them. This was, he saw in that instant, the fulfillment of Israel's ancient scriptures, but also the utter denial of the way he had been reading them up to that point. God the Creator had raised Jesus from the dead, declaring not only that he really was Israel's Messiah, but that he had done what the one God had promised to do himself in person. Saul had been absolutely right in his devotion to the one God, but absolutely wrong in his understanding of who that one God was and how his purposes would be fulfilled. He had been absolutely right in his devotion to Israel and the Torah, but absolutely wrong in his view of Israel's vocation and identity and even in the meaning of of Torah itself. His lifelong loyalty was utterly right, but utterly misdirected. He had a zeal for God, but had not understood what the one God was up to. Everything was not focused on the figure from whom there streamed a a blinding light, the figure who now addressed Saul as a master addresses a slave, the figure he recognized as the crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Heaven and earth came together in this figure, and he was commanding Saul to acknowledge this fact and to reorientate his entire life accordingly. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So unless we understand what happened to Saul there on the Damascus Road, we'll never understand passages like this because there is, there, there is so much passion here. Um, and uh, let's get back to the text. You finished at Romans 8, yes? Ages, was it ages ago? Okay. But Romans 8, if you remember, it finishes on a high note, doesn't it? It's, it's just an amazing, it's, it's, it's like a crescendo. I remember going once Sue many years ago, and we, just before we were married, I, was, I suppose I was 20, we were married at 21, um, she wanted to culture me. So she took me to the last night of the proms, which I thought, oh, I'm going to dread this. My idea of culture is hitting a ball, kicking a ball, serving a ball or whatever. And uh, Sue, 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 she was working for the Evening News and she had tickets, so we went. And the second half, the whole of it, was given over to Ravel's Bolero. And it just started very gently. And about three quarters of an hour later, and I was there. I'd been converted. I was, I, I, I was, I wouldn't say I was um, cultivated, almost. But I, guess what I did the next day? I went out and I bought the LP and I played. I drove so mad, drove so mad with it. And then I remember lately when Torval and Dean, you remember, 
Ravel's Bolero. Wow, you know, I was converted. I had changed. And this is what has happened. Paul in Romans 8, it's a high note. We're no longer condemned. Jesus has taken on our punishment. We are now people of the Spirit led by him. We cry, Abba, Father. We're sons, we're adopted. We're heirs with Jesus in his inheritance. How amazing is that? The Holy Spirit helps us. When we don't even know how to pray, which is often, yes? He helps us with groanings. And now, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Come on, at least say one word, please. Nothing, nothing, no one. I, I have a magazine of those who are Paul Robinson's magazine, Persecuted Christians. And you read what's happening in the world today. It's, it's shocking. More persecution today than there's ever been of the church. But nothing can separate those martyrs from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Is that not good news? I guess if we went from, straight from chapter 8 to chapter 12 and skip 9, 10 and 11, we would be unaware of Paul's mood swing. Because he goes in a moment from one of celebration to grief. One from celebrating the glory of Jesus into, into grieving. And the words in the, in the original, they, they speak of someone in deep depression. How can he go from such a height that no one can separate me from the love of God? And in the next utterance, here he is. Why such a contrast? Was, was Saul a seeker of Jesus? No, he wasn't. He was a persecutor of Jesus. Paul did not seek out Jesus. It was a sovereign act of God that brought and called Saul to be the apostles of the Gentiles and to a life of suffering for Jesus. He was chosen, he was destined or predestined. He was elected by God for such and so was Israel, yet Israel is rejected. Paul is predestined. It seems as though Israel has lost out. There are some exceptions. There's what's called the remnant. We met in the passage I read. In fact, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 9 when he says, he says, even if even if Abraham's descendants in the flesh are more than the sand on the seashore, all Israel will not be saved, only a remnant. And, and, and Paul is still through and through. He's an Israelite. And we have to understand that. You know, I mean, you may not have known this, but the Jewish Christian churches struggled for 200 years to read Paul and his epistles. They struggled. They still saw him as a traitor. They still saw him as someone who turned his back on his people. Paul was passionate, passionate for his people. He, he goes through his pedigree, doesn't he, in Philippians. He's, 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 he says, in the flesh, 
And we're talking about flesh here, Israel and the flesh. I can boast, circumcised on the eighth day, race an Israelite, tribe Benjamin, Hebrew through and through, Torah observance, a Pharisee, zealous. I persecuted the church, he says. Official status under the law, blameless. Who can say that? It can't be, says Paul, that God has abandoned Israel. They were chosen to be his son, his representative on earth. Theirs is the patriarchs, the prophets, the holy scriptures. But apart from a remnant, they, like me, Paul would say, have rejected him. I rejected him. Paul says here, if I could, I would become a curse like Jesus on a cross to save Israel. There's echoes there of Moses. Remember when the Israelites worshipped that calf they made? Moses went before God and he said, if I could atone for their sins, I would. I, I believe, as I read through this passage, that Paul, before he wrote this epistle, must have been wrestling himself with revelation from God because he's asking this question. Has God finished with his old covenant people? What about the promise to Abraham? They're going to be a great nation, great man, great nation, all nations from your seed. It says that Abraham believed God and it was, and it was that belief that put him in right, in rightness with God. But what did he believe? It's a good question, isn't it? What did he believe? I think he believed this. He would have an inheritance. What do we have in Jesus, folks? We have an inheritance, don't we? We have an inheritance. And Israel failed God. They were not the light to lighten the Gentiles. And you ask the question, why? Can you remember back when you were in Romans chapter 3? Can you believe that? Remember? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you told an Israelite that, goodness knows what they would do. But we were all in Adam, Jew and Gentile alike. Just tell me how long I've got, um, Neil. What? Okay. Okay. That's uh, so a dangerous thing to say. I, I remember when we, when we, when we, many years ago, in our early twenties, went to the Billy Graham um, training classes for his crusades. We we learned various scriptures, and and one of them was for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But actually, if you take that verse on its own, it doesn't actually give you the full picture. Let me let me read you just what it says. Then 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 we get where Paul is coming from. But now, quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah for the benefit for all who have faith. For there is no distinction. All sinned and fell short of God's glory. And by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant through the redemption which is found in Jesus, the Messiah. The key here is all. All sinned and fall short of the glory, except one Jew. Who was that Jew? 
It's Jesus, one Jew. Remember in this passage it says that God did in himself what he promised to do. And that was the mystery that Paul revealed as he understood it himself, that it's in God himself. It's God who is crucified on the cross in the person of Jesus. True, true Israel is not Abraham's descendants by the flesh, but by faith. Does Paul believe God has given up on Israel? No way! If you read chapter 11, you'll read there that he says, they will one day be provoked to jealousy by whom? The church. That gives us a huge responsibility. I wonder what they think when they look at the church. Are they provoked to jealousy? That's a responsibility. So how do we apply this to ourselves, folks? Because I now want to try and make this relevant. I think in two ways. I guess every one of us in this room this morning have those who we love who reject Jesus. People who we're very close to, maybe it's children. Family, parents, very dear friends. How, 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 what, what does this, in this passage encourage us? How should we behave towards those? Well, we're to love them to bits. We're not to accuse. We're not to condemn, no matter how much their lifestyle appalls you. That's a hard thing to do. But when I listen to the debates sometimes on the gay stuff and all that other stuff, I think I think we're missing the point. We, 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 we look at things so accusatorily, but for the grace of God go I. Would you say amen to that? It's just true, isn't it? For all have sinned. We all what what is to fall short of God's glory is to be idolatrous, is to worship other than God, whatever that God with a small g may be. For me, it was, wow, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. That wouldn't glorify him even to share it. So we love them to bits. Henry Tyler. Anybody remember Henry Tyler? <laughs> Not many of you, one or two of you. He was uh, one of the original New Frontiers team with Terry. There was, there was six of us with Terry in those <gasps> five decades I go back. Uh, to 1980. But Henry Tyler was a godly man. We travelled a lot in Hungary together in those communist days, saw some amazing things. And I remember once there was a couple in the church where Henry was um, serving, and they got children, and one of their children, I think it was their daughter, was marrying a non-Christian, and they refused to go to the wedding. And Henry said, children are a gift from God. You love them to bits, no matter. That's what God does with his children, even to the point that he sacrifices himself to bring them back. I'll always remember him sharing that. So we love them. To, we don't judge. We don't accuse. I've, one of the things about COVID, I've written a book. It's, uh, out, it's out there online. And uh, I think you might be getting a copy soon if you haven't got it already. It, it's on the way. It's, uh, I think... An edict from Trevor. 
Um, and uh, Sue's sister and, and brother and all, they're lovely people, but they have no time for religion, God, Jesus, anything. They are very, very, I would say anti. They're just, what's the word, Sue? They're nothing, are they? they just. And they're older, a bit older than us. They have a real fear of death. And they've locked themselves away. But I, I sent them a copy of the book. And this is what I got back from her. I'm reading it. And I'll probably read it more than once. And who knows? Wow. I tell you what. If you knew them. It's amazing. And then, lastly, we need, to, we need to pray like we've never prayed. Sue and I pray. We have a joint, joint devotional most mornings, and we meet with Tom. We, well, we, have, we meet with Tom. That's what we say. We're meeting with Tom. Tom Wright and his commentaries. Um, and... Um, John Wayne is on the wall as well, his calendar, I'm a John Wayne fan. And of course Jesus is there as well. But, but we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray for our kids and we pray for our family. Pray. But you know what, Sue said the other day, do you think God is bored with our prayers? We should have prayed the same prayers for the same people. You know, it, it, take, and it takes up a lot of God's time. And then I read this, I read this in Proverbs, I think it was chapter 15, it says something like this. When we pray, it pleases God. So we pray our socks off. We do not give up. And then, finally, we pray for Israel. We pray for Israel. God will gather, will, there will be a gathering in of Israel when they are provoked to jealousy by God's church. Finish with a story. I like to finish with a story. A long time ago, everything seemed to be when I was a young man. I was probably in my 40s. I did a celebration. Anybody remember Alan Vincent? Alan Vincent, he was very, very involved with some Jewish people. And I did a, I did a, um, I did a celebration for him in North, in North London somewhere. And there was, um, it was a Jewish area. And I remember turning up with a, Dave Gillard came with me to, to play some music and sing some worship songs. And I can remember I was preaching out of the early chapters of Acts. And it was one of those, one of those meeting rooms. It was a bit dark at the back, you know. And I, I, I could vaguely see someone who was quite tall. And, and they seemed to be very dark, bearded, dressed in black, and um, some, quite tall. And right at the end of the meeting, I went back into the vestry afterwards, and somebody came and said, there's a, there's a, there's a man here, um, he, he's got a strange story, he'd, he'd really like to meet you. I said, fine. So then come this guy, and he was a rabbi. He had all the gear on, and he had a long beard, and he was very imposing. And um, he, his was, this was his story. He said, I got on a plane yesterday, and I was just rummaging around like you do, you know. Um, for when in, in front of you, you've got, uh, you can see what films are on. And he said, I found this leaflet advertising this meeting. And he said, well, it's near where I'm going to be. So I thought I would come along. He said, I didn't tell anybody because for me, um, an Orthodox Jew, I should, I, should, I should not be in such a meeting. 
And, I, and I'd become aware when I was preaching, and as you sometimes preach, I became aware. I'd gone off at a tangent, and I'd started talking about the whole thing of Israel. And it's, that's not something I would normally get into. I think it was in Acts chapter 2, that passage about, you know, they, they gave themselves to this, this, and this. And he came to me, and he said, I've read the New Testament. So I know it. He was a scholar. But he said to me, while I've listened to you, I realize something. You know God. I know of God. I was humbled. I was humbled. I want to tell you, folks, it was like me meeting the Apostle Paul pre-conversion. And I always remember that. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> you know, I mean, how do you preach the gospel to a Jew who's read the New Testament? You think, grief. And in the end, I just said to him, can we just pray together? And it's the only time I've ever prayed with a Jew, I think. And we just prayed together. And I prayed that God would give him a revelation of himself in Jesus, the Messiah. Folks, I think we need to ask God to give us this new, the true, new one new man in Christ type of churches where there are Jews. I know John's going to be with you in two weeks. I think that's right, isn't it, Neil? And, and I know John will. I mean, John is the one, one who, of us all that's been there. But I, even with John, I know when you think of it, Messianic churches is not New Testament, no more than Gentile churches is New Testament in that sense. that God wants us to be one in Jesus, the Messiah. And I believe we should pray and ask God for those divine um, divine moments and opportunities because this passage is challenging isn't it it puts responsibility on us his gentile covenant people shall we pray thank you for that bit of time uh, neil let's just pray Lord Jesus, we, we can't help but stand in awe of you this morning. And you are sovereign. And we're not going to dictate to you no more than the clay can dictate to the potter. But we come humbly with our prayers, Lord. And so in the light of this passage, Lord, will you do something in your church? so deep and so wonderful where your church becomes so non-accusatorial and so non-judgmental that it provokes Israelites to turn to Jesus as the living God and to find in him the salvation that was prepared before the foundation of the world, Lord. Will you, will you help us? So this passage of Scripture is not just an academic, interesting exercise on a Sunday morning, but becomes something that becomes flesh and blood in us, Lord. And so that through studying the, these three passages over the next three weeks, Lord, you bring something alive in us, Lord, which will help, which will help, Lord, speed your purposes in, in, in what you have planned to do. And we ask that, Lord, so that Jesus will be fully glorified and fully worshipped. 
And we may have churches that are truly one new man in Christ with both Jew and Gentile. Amen. Amen.